Hi, I'm Steffi Nelson. I am a writer and editor in Los Angeles, and I edited the collection Slouching Towards Los Angeles, Living and Writing by Joan Didion's Light, just released on February 11th by Rare Bird. So please look for it in your favorite independent bookstore. I am here with Michelle Chihara, one of the contributors to the collection. Um, welcome, Michelle. Thank you. Michelle is a professor of creative writing and literature at Whittier College, a writer of prose and fiction, and the economics and finance editor of LA Review of Books. And we are going to talk today about Michelle's essay, Where I Am From, which questions through diligent research the version of the family history that Joan Didion presents in Where I Was From, her 2003 nonfiction book, um, and you specifically look at her family's position as landowners. Yeah. So you spent a lot of time researching this subject in the San Francisco State Archives. Why did you feel compelled to puncture the myths Joan had created? Yeah, well, I think there's kind of a, there's a short answer to the question and then probably a deeper psychological long answer to the question that I might not be able to articulate. But I was, uh, I had been a reporter for a long time before I went back to grad school to get my PhD in English. And I was working on a dissertation in which I was analyzing Joan Didion and looking particularly at that book where I was from. Uh, and I kept trying to figure out, well, what does she really mean when she says we were thinking about developing this ranch in Florin. Um, she has a little bit of information in the book about her and her brother's decision to do that, to sell off pieces of this land. Um, and I just got really obsessed with figuring out, well, what, what does that really mean? How much did she really develop? What, what are we talking about here? Uh, especially given the family history that she begins the book with, where she talks about her family crossing the country in covered wagons. But they'd been in California for a long time. Mm -hmm. I think it's eight generations, right? Yeah, at least. <laughs> um, so I started asking a friend who is in real estate about how I would figure this out. And he put me in touch with a, another real estate lawyer who said, well, you got to go to Sacramento and look in the archives, look in the records, city, the state records up there. Um, and you can basically look up deeds going all the way back to eight generations ago. Um, and then in the city assessor's office, you can put together more uh, if you start looking at the maps. And I basically just... I got a very small research grant from the University of California. I was a grad student at Irvine. And I went up there and spent a couple days in the archives doing just that. So what were you hoping to find? And how is that different from what you did find? Um, so I think the, the book that you have edited put together um, is a group of people who, you, you say it as in the light of Joan Didion, um, I, I was one of the many, I think, who 
read Didion at a formative moment and um, I kind of can't imagine growing up without her voice in my head. <laughs> and so I just, I wanted to know what her background really meant because I felt like it mattered to her as a writer that she was trying to puncture these myths that her that came with her, you know, longtime California Republican family, um, landowning family, politically involved family, and I wanted to know more. And um, I think the uh, the old reporter in me wanted to just call her up and ask her these questions, <laughs> but. Um, Academics don't do that. I've started doing that again as an academic, just calling people up and asking them. But I never felt um, entitled to call Joan Didion up and ask her, so I went muckraking in the archives instead. Um, do you think she would have been truthful? I mean, I feel like Joan Didion will be elusive, but she's never dishonest. Yeah, I doubt she would ever have been dishonest. Um, I felt like she might have been annoyed. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, I'm being honest in the book. What do the numbers matter, right? Mm. Um, I think I thought I would eventually, like, send her a letter or something, and I wrote this essay instead. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel. You know, I described... The collection is, you know, partially a love letter, and it's sort of, yeah, the things we've all kind of wanted to say to Joan in our own in our own way. We tell her what she has meant to us at a very at a very deep level. In the essay, one of the things I talk about is she has a line about the WalMarts kind of sprouting up across the land, and she's suspicious of her own nostalgia about. California before it was developed and then I found in the archive this deed where the Didians sold to McDonald's right and so that's one of the things I talk about and I I don't think Joan Didion would deny it I feel like she'd be like yeah I was trying to work through this right (laughs) that's why I wrote the book um you actually have a line in there um you said she found nothing to replace those punctured myths with. And I was wondering why you think that is. And then I was thinking about the timing and wondering, you know, I mean, her husband died not too long after the publication of this book. She was uh-huh. probably starting on something else. I'm, I'm sure she says that in The Year of Magical Thinking. I just can't remember. I mean, she was always working on something. Yeah. So... Obviously, she changes so much as as a person and a writer over the course of her long career. But I do think where I was from is at a kind of hinge point. Uh, A lot of the political reporting that she was doing, um, the New York Review of Books pieces, you know, all there's a huge amount of uh, prose that she's written. But she tended before that book not to talk about herself very much. Uh, Then after that book, the the memoirs that she becomes even more famous for later in life uh, come after the death of her husband. Uh, that book is about losing her mom, really. Um, so in that sense, it, it begins those books, the, that kind of cycle of memoir writing. 
Yeah. Um, and a return to California. Mm-hmm. You know, she really does a lot of revisiting her, you know, past past yeah. moments, past memories. Yeah. And in the book, she says, right, there's this moment where she says that she's with Quintana on the old boardwalks in Sacramento. And she says she's the, the ghosts that are in her life don't have to haunt Quintana. And she mm. says it partly because she's Quintana's adopted. Part of my own personal reaction to that was, you know, we all want these ghosts. <laughs> we wanna, right. We, we want to feel we've come from somewhere. <laughs> and, of course, being adopted wouldn't make you feel that those ghosts were not your own. Mm-hmm. You know, if anything, it would make that complicated relationship with your mother even more complicated if she's trying to say, no, they don't belong to you. Yeah. Um, so I think I was writing into my own reaction to that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I literally walked those boardwalks when I was pregnant thinking about these ghosts. Yeah, you know, I was, um, I was rereading where I was from, and I was so surprised to um, just really think about the idea that Sacramento would flood, the town itself would flood, and, and that was why they had these boardwalks, right? They were elevated. Yeah, like so much of the architecture of Los Angeles, too, uh, it's, it was determined by being a floodplain. Mm-hmm. And then the kind of general reaction of most of California over, over the course of its history was to fight that flooding as opposed to using yeah. those flood. And now look at us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, the L.A. River, the, the channel... The channel, the concrete channel that is the LA River, was created also to try to control a floodplain, right? Instead of the emerald necklace plan that we got from Olmsted's grandson, right? That could have created a series of parks that would have both retained more water and been greener, and instead we fight. <laughs> I didn't. I don't know about this emerald necklace yeah, plan. Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of amazing uh, to see. You can you can see again. That was another archive visit that you can make, but um, I think that that attitude of we'll just we'll be stronger than it all we can overcome all this history through this kind of um, intense repression of our history and of what the land is asking for that's one of the things that Dadian's talking about in where I was from um and yeah absolutely the Sacramento there's a a lot of the architecture was to control the floodplain instead of working with it Mm -hmm. I don't know the actual, you know, sequence of events that resulted in the paving of the L.A. River, but I wonder if it had something to do with, you know, taking a natural resource away from the people and and saying, we own this water, we're going to divert this water and decide how you get it and when you get it, and we're going to charge you for it. Well, my understanding of that history... Um, is that the, so Frogtown, what's now Frogtown, is the part of L.A. that was flooding. And my understanding is that it was private citizens of means whose homes were threatened, and that that's part of why Mm. it ended up becoming uh, the Army Corps of Engineers coming in and controlling the, but it was a moment in American history where that was the reaction across the country, the levees in Louisiana, Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, 
other parts of Los Angeles that were built out into the foothills of the San Gabriels, which are coming down all the time in debris flows. It was all a kind of hubristic uh, American idea that we could be stronger than nature. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, some of what I know about this comes from John McPhee's book, another amazing uh, nonfiction writer, Control of Nature. Mm, oh. Um, yeah, and, and again, I really think of Joan Didion as she's really trying to puncture that hubris mm-hmm. in California. Yeah. Um, but she's not willing to question her family's <laughs> explicit <Right>. role <laughs> um, to some degree. In a kind of, I mean, it's almost like family loyalty, right? Like, what's she going to say about... Right. But then she kind of blows that all wide open with the next two books. Yeah. I mean, not necessarily about her family, but kind of. Um, In a different way. Well, herself. I mean, she definitely kind of lays herself bare. Yeah. And I think in where I was from, she still wasn't willing to do that. I mean, she's kind of all bets are off after after John dies. Um, yeah, I I think one of the things where I'm thinking about Joan Didion, one of the things I was trying to think about when I was doing this research was what do I expect from these writers? <laughs> what do I need them to be? And um, I think I was ambivalent about it then and I'm still ambivalent about it now. Like I don't, I don't, need Joan Didion to be a saint and she's certainly not right um but there's a way in which my trying to do this research was a way of respecting both her privacy and her strength like she can take it if mm-hmm. I decide to go try to figure out how big was that foreign ranch um and one of the you know I found mineral leases on some of the, the land and I found some documents have suggested, you know, these their, their land holdings were really quite large at one point. But, of course, she's not the only person in that family. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how um, the, the holdings were broken up in order to split them up among a number of people. Um, and I didn't have the resources to go any deeper. <laughs> so what were the archives like? What was that experience like? <laughs> um well, How hard it, was it to dig up this information? It was hard. <laughs> um, well, first I needed uh, some of the information that I got from this this real estate lawyer to kind of help me interpret what I was seeing. And then you have to go and, you know, there's microfiche documents. So it's very, it's not like, um, there's some archives that academics who are working on old literature get to go to where it's librarians who will bring you folders that are very carefully documented and laid out and you can't take anything in that will harm the documents and this is not that kind this is a city records so it's microfiche in these kind of mica cubicles where I go in and I was quite pregnant when I was doing this so I'm just sitting clicking through a lot of and eventually I figured out that I didn't have to pay for a lot of printing I could just take pictures with my cell phone so a lot of documents I have pictures on my cell phone Um, but then I'm not a digital asset manager so my own record keeping was um, shoddy, especially after I had put everything that I'd printed out 
in a file. So I took extensive notes, put everything in a file. Then I had to go back later and try to get my files to sync up with my cell phone pictures. Um, and then there were two offices that I visited. One was a city assessor and one was another office with deeds. And um, getting those documents to work together was also complicated. At one point they just you know handed me a bunch of binders and I'm flipping through trying to figure out how does this map sync up with the maps that I've looked at trying to find these plots and put them together to put the deeds that I looked at together with the plots of land so it was complicated <laughs> did you get the sense that these documents had been looked at at all recently by anyone oh gosh no <laughs> I don't think anyone else is looking yeah. I mean it, I, I kind of was hoping that I would find some more coherent old document, like one deed that for the whole ranch, right, with her name on it. And I never found quite anything like that. So I don't have the the document that would show me a total of acres that the family held. Mm-hmm. And I also, I did my own calculations of how much money must have moved through these holdings. And then in the end, I decided that that just wasn't as important. I didn't need to prove that she made a lot of money off of land. I just wanted to look at the fact that this family was one of these old land-holding families in California and that some of the decisions about how to develop that land, how to sell it off, had come through Joan and her brother. That's what I wanted to find, and that's what I found and when did most of these sales take place? I wonder if, you know, once it happened, she was sort of like, okay, I'm leaving. You know, she left in 1988, moved back to New York. I wonder. Yeah, a lot it... of the sales were in the 90s okay, uh, so that I was already... looking at. Um, but I think that the sales were part of the leaving, as I understand it. And that the book, in a way, was a a meditation on mm-hmm. a long departure. Mm-hmm. Um, so in general, I'm very impressed to hear that you have read every <laughs> single book by Joan Didion. I don't know if everyone think, can say that. I don't think I've missed any. And the New York Review of Books articles, and of course I remember some of them better than others. And So... Could you just talk a little bit about your personal connection to her and what she represents to you or what do you think her greatest strength is and how she has maybe influenced you as a writer? Well, I was introduced to Joan Didion, I believe, in high school and then really again in college. And it was in college that I was deciding I wanted to be a reporter and she was the glamorous figure that I wanted to be. Um, And she was the woman who was dedicated to her writing as a reporter and a fiction writer without apology, uh, the only woman in the group of you know gonzo journalists, new journalists, that, and she made nonfiction writing part of literature in this very particular way. And at that time, I think... She also was unapologetic about being a woman. She has that 1970s article that she wrote questioning the feminist movement. Mm -hmm. I think I was probably more influenced by that than I 
would like to have been. <laughs> but you know, in the 90s when I was a reporter, you couldn't say you were a feminist and get work. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think it's hard to but remember that But in the 90s, that, that was like third wave, third wave feminism. You could be... Right, girl. Proud of being a woman, but you couldn't really call yourself a feminist. I mean, I have my stories about, but she she was a model of strength in that mode, where it was still really complicated to talk about feminism. There was that that kind of post-feminist moment where we're supposed to be past that, right? Yeah. So you've got to be grateful for being here and not talk about it too much. Um, and she was the model, I think, for surviving that world with grace <laughs> um and you know now in this moment i think 2020 hindsight i would love for joan didion to have had a different relationship to feminism <laughs> um but she felt so necessary you know it, it's like what would i have done without joan didion's example her voice, um, that kind of gimlet-eyed clarity. I don't know what I would have done. I wouldn't have been a writer. Um, and there's all kinds of criticism out there about her, about her class position. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was wondering. I was wondering if that was perhaps why she didn't identify with the feminist movement. I mean, the feminist movement was a struggle. It was resistance mm-hmm. against this patriarchal system that she was within yet sur- surpassing, but she was, you know, enabled to do her work by her, by her class, I oh, think. completely. Right. And she, um, she doesn't, I don't think she minces around the idea that she grew up conservative, but also had ideas about how things should be done in a kind of conservative way mm-hmm. that were aesthetic um, and compelling, but nonetheless conservative. She, she unqu- unquestionably benefited from the privilege of her position. I don't think she would have argued with that at any point. Um, and I think she, her politics changed pretty dramatically over the course of her career. And she doesn't quibble about that either, right? She, she writes some point about um, how she liked Goldwater. Mm-hmm. You know, she came from a family of Republicans. And, and then later she... She starts to question both, I think, some of those, um, some of the ideology that she grew up with, but also where I was from is puncturing the, the class pretensions, right? That it was so important to have certain kind of Muslim curtains or whatever it is, right? She's like, mm, maybe that's not what this was about. <laughs> um, so I don't think that you have to agree with all of her politics in order to have enormous respect for her political writing, which I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- there's that kind of understanding of her political ideology over here. And then there's just what it meant to be a young woman who's not white and didn't come from the upper class. I grew up solidly middle brow, <laughs> but my grandparents are immigrants. And I, I, I mentioned that in, and there's kind of what she meant to me personally um, 
because she made something seem possible mm-hmm. that I don't think would have seemed possible otherwise. And she was always, I think, uncomfortable with the, the whole idea of what role models might mean to other people. Mm. Um, but she certainly was that to me. Well, I wonder if she is unique in that she she doesn't represent what it is to struggle to be a woman and express yourself and try to survive as a writer. She's like, I'm doing it. And although she, yes, she had a husband who also, you know, came from money, um, but they were both workers. They were, were, you know, working writers who didn't, you know, I mean, I guess they probably had their cocktails in the evenings <laughs> and went to plenty of parties. Well, right. I, what's interesting, is it about not struggle or is it about not apologizing? She, because, you know, she writes about her migraines and her neuroses and true. there's plenty of struggle, but true. it's, she doesn't apologize for that. And she doesn't, she doesn't accept that her struggles are different from anybody else's. She's just like, yeah, we all struggle. Here we are. Right. Yeah. And there's some, what you do. I, there's some great, I feel like it's in Slouching Towards Bethlehem, but it would take me too long to find <laughs> it. But where she talks about the gin blunted the pain and then the dexedrine right. blunted the gin and then the writing. <laughs> but it's, it always comes back to the writing. It does. And I forget where I read this now, but famously, she and when she was with um, John Dunn, she she didn't talk very much. She was always very quiet. She was always very reserved. And she said, "I, you know, she's only herself in front of the keyboard and mm. the typewriter." Which you know, she would have a typewriter in her bag when she would go to her journalistic assignments. And I just want a typewriter in my bag. Because, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> But there, you know, and, and it's in it's in play it as it lays too. It's in the novels that that kind of gin soaked <laughs> sense of you know it's a little bit debauched, but still very classy all at the same time. <laughs> um, right. So it's not that there's no struggle, but there's just no apology. Well, there's no there's a personal struggle, but there's not a struggle to be a writer. Yeah, that she's she's doing it and she's succeeding at it and I mean of course there are other examples um but I also think you know I was thinking about what what else was going on at that time for women and I thought of Helen Gurley Brown 1964 sex in the single girl and it's sort of like this is what it is to be an independent woman and Joan Didion never presented she never um even got into that loop of what it is to be uh to appeal to men you know she didn't um she just did it on her own terms and maybe because she just had this husband so it was that didn't enter the picture at all, but I do feel like that's that's part of it, you know, just yeah, she's somehow untouchable. Um, she never all the criticism that gets lobbed at her doesn't stick in a particular way. I, I think some of that has to be white privilege, class privilege, but there's also a 
a grace about the way that she refused to apologize, but also refused to allow for a certain kind of, um, what is it? It's like there's a kind of vulnerability that um, is attributed to women, and she, that never stuck to her. Even though, if you think about it, especially the later books, they're vulnerable in a particular way, but it never seemed to touch her, or it never, it never threw, and maybe it's just that fundamental thing that you're talking about, that she was just always a writer, and you couldn't, you couldn't get at her on that, and the rest of it, she's going to figure out in public, in the words, on the page. Yeah. I don't know, I think we, we live with so much um, cancel culture now, right, where, mm-hmm. you know, oh, this is, you say, you can say that because of privilege, and so now I'm going to cancel you. <laughs> um, and I think it's important to remember people like Joan Didion, right, where she does not instantiate my entire politics, right? Like, I have political beef with certain aspects of what she said or what she represented, um, and yet I couldn't, I couldn't cancel her if I wanted to, right? Like, <laughs> I couldn't, I can't imagine my own brain without Joan Didion's work. So, you know, how do we, I think the book is trying to think about, well, how do we, how do we process all of the history that she represents, um, and everything that she made possible, but also what else do we want to make possible in the light of this incredible writer and the the last few years of her life have been so heartbreakingly sad um that I hope that what the book is able to do is kind of show her a greater respect than saying well we're not going to talk about her because tragedy has come to her and in a way I think that's a kind of respect for that flinty lack of vulnerability that she always had um, I know that she is greater than, you know, any question that we could ask. <laughs> yeah, any image that we might think she's trying to hold up. It's no, she's she's bigger than that. Yeah, I, I feel like we have kind of come to the conclusion of our conversation. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> it's really great. Yeah. I love talking about Joan Didion. <laughs> <laughs> I, know. I could do it for a long time. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, for coming in and talking with me today about Joan Didion and your beautiful essay, which is going to be excerpted by Lit Hub. So that's exciting. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for editing the collection, for the invitation, and for this fantastic conversation.